All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Acts. In this session, we're going to be looking at all of Acts chapter 12, and it's really a fascinating, fun, exciting little episode in the story of Acts. It's a story that, in a lot of ways, wraps up our focus on Jerusalem and prepares us for growing expansion of the church throughout the Mediterranean world. Using the analogy we've mentioned several times, if Acts is viewed as a six-act play, at this point in the play, the curtain falls and we're ready for intermission. So after this story, little intermission, and we pick up the second half of the book of Acts that focuses on the Apostle Paul and the expansion of the gospel throughout the Mediterranean world. This particular little story uh, happens right around the time that Barnabas and Saul are bringing the offering from Antioch to Jerusalem. We know that because it bookends it. The end of chapter 11 mentioned how they're going to take this offering to Jerusalem and bring it to the elders. And then the end of chapter 12 says how they did that, and then they returned to Antioch. And so that little episode of Barnabas and Saul bringing this offering from the church at Antioch to Jerusalem bookends the story that's the focus of Acts chapter 12. And in that regard, it actually may help explain why Barnabas and Saul deliver the offering to the elders and not the apostles. Because what we see in Acts chapter 12 is the ramping up of persecution in Jerusalem that leads to the death of one of the apostles, and then the the other apostle, Peter himself, being forced out of the city and going to do ministry somewhere else. And so, in a very real sense, Acts chapter 12 wraps up the first half of the book of Acts. It wraps up the focus on Peter and Jerusalem, and then sets the stage for the second half of the book of Acts, which focuses on Paul and the gospel going out into the the broader Mediterranean world. So, this story is transitional and important and exciting and fun in a lot of ways. Here's what happens. Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church to do them harm. Who is this Herod? Well, there's a lot of Herods that uh, come throughout history and several that are mentioned in the New Testament. The first and the most well-known Herod is Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one that's involved in the story of Jesus' birth clear back in Luke chapter 2. That's not the Herod we have here. This is is Herod the Great's grandson. He is Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I lived from 10 BC to 44 AD. He is the brother of Herodias, who's well known for her involvement in asking for the head of John the Baptist and thus John the Baptist's execution. And Herod Agrippa, his dad died when he was about three, put to death by Herod the Great because of Herod the Great's kind of maniacal suspicion of anybody who he was afraid might try to get his throne. So Herod the Great had Herod Agrippa's dad put to death when Herod Agrippa was three. And as a result, Herod Agrippa was actually sent to Rome and brought up in the city of Rome with future rulers. In fact, he was uh, raised with Claudius. Claudius, who we mentioned in the last recording, who became emperor in AD 41, Claudius was one of Herod Agrippa's childhood friends in Rome. And Herod Agrippa, as he was growing up in Rome, befriended 
Caligula, who was emperor before Claudius. And so he had these connections with some of the rulers in Rome, which is how he ended up becoming powerful. When Caligula became emperor in 37, he actually gave Herod some uh, territories in Palestine, and Herod returned then to uh, his home area and assumed the title king over these regions that Caligula gave him. When Caligula was assassinated and Claudius became emperor, Claudius extended Herod Agrippa's reign to include uh, Judea and Samaria. And so effectively, Herod is now over all of the region of the Jews, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, and Perea, and all of that region, Herod is made king on behalf of the Romans for that, and he ruled as king from about 41 to 44 over the area of the Jews. And Herod had enough Jewish blood flowing through his veins that a number of the Jews actually really liked him, and he actually tried to honor a bunch of the Jewish customs. And so he was somewhat well-liked, even though he was a bit ruthless and a bit of a political survivor. Well, here in Acts chapter 12, he decides to persecute the Christians there in Jerusalem. And so he laid hands on them, seized them, in other words, to do them harm. One of those that he seized was James, the brother of John, whom he had executed with the sword, verse 2. Who is this James? Well, this is James and his brother John. They're the sons of Zebedee, the two fishermen you meet early on in the Gospels who were called away from their, their family fishing business to be followers of Jesus. In other words, James is one of the original 12. James is an apostle. James is the first apostle executed for his faith, and he's executed with a sword, verse 2 tells us. In other words, he was put to death by beheading according to the Roman practice. And so James, the son of Zebedee, brother of John, the son of Zebedee, was executed by Herod Agrippa right around the year 43 or 44. When Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, when he saw that killing James made the Jews, particularly the Jewish leadership, happy. That's what it's meant when it pleased the Jews. It's talking about the Jewish leadership. When it made them happy, he proceeded to arrest Peter as well. It's like, wow, if killing James made them happy. What would happen if we actually killed the, you know, the major leader of all of this group? Let's arrest Peter as well. And so he arrested Peter himself. Now, these were during the days of unleavened bread. In other words, he arrested Peter during the Passover and unleavened bread festival. The feast of unleavened bread is the feast that ensued after Passover. In other words, this is one of the major Jewish holidays. This is one of the major pilgrim festivals for the Jews. People coming from all over the empire crowding into the city of Jerusalem and one of the major religious experiences for the Jewish faith. And so you have thousands of extra people in and around Jerusalem for this holiday uh, that celebrates, if you remember the story of Passover, the Jewish redemption and, and liberation from Egypt in, this, in the book of Exodus. That's the feast that's being celebrated when he arrests Peter. And so he, he wisely decides, okay, we're going to wait till after the feast to execute Peter like we executed James. And so verse 4, 
Uh, when he had arrested him, he put him in prison, turning him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending only after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So he puts him in prison. He wants to hold him securely. So he hands him over to four squads of soldiers. A squad, according to the way they operated in these days, was a squad of four. So four squads of soldiers equaled 16 soldiers. And each squad would be responsible for a watch of the night. So four at a time watching Peter. And that'll play out in the story that follows. And the goal is to bring Peter out after the Passover, presumably to have some sort of public trial that he can control and then execute Peter just as he had done James for, you know, gaining his clout and his status and being well-liked by the leaders and all of that. That's the goal. So Peter's in prison being held by four squads of soldiers. And so verse five, so Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made to God intensely by the church. And so Peter's in prison, the church is gathered and they're praying for God to release Peter because James has recently been executed and that was awful. Let's not have that happen to Peter. And so they're praying intensely for God to do something to get him out of prison, to grant favor in his trial. Uh, who knows exactly what they're praying. As the story unfolds, if they're praying for God to get him out of prison, they don't expect God to answer that prayer. So maybe that's not exactly what they were praying. Maybe they're praying for somehow God to grant him favor at his trial and not let him be executed. I'm not really sure. But the story that happens next is told in great detail, is very dramatic and pretty amazing. Here's what happens. Verse 6. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. So here it is. Peter's been in prison for who knows how many days, but during the feast, it's the night before he's supposed to be brought out for his public trial and his presuming execution. In other words, uh, God could have done what he does next any time over the last few days, right? But he waits till the last minute. So God's got a bit of a flair for the dramatic in this story. It's the last minute. It's the very night. In fact, it actually seems like, from the way the story is told, it's the last watch of the night. And so it's the last hour that uh, God could answer the, the church's prayers and get Peter out of prison or whatever. In other words, a flair for the dramatic. Um, Peter, notice is sleeping between two soldiers. So it's literally the very night before he's about probably to be executed and Peter's sleeping peacefully. That's amazing. He has two soldiers chained to him uh, inside the cell and then he has two more soldiers in front of the doors guarding the cell in the middle of the night. And here's, here's what happens, verse 7. Uh, and behold... An angel of the Lord suddenly stood near Peter, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter's side, woke him up, saying, get up quickly. And so we're going to get an, an angel breaking Peter out of jail, literally hours before Peter's supposed to go to trial and be executed. And so this angel appears in the cell, um, bright lights in the cell. This angel strikes Peter on the side. In fact, the word for struck there means like, 
like not just a little poking, like we're striking him roughly, like we're shaking him, we're kicking him in the ribs, we're doing something to wake him up. Because uh, Peter's sleeping so soundly that the angel wakes him up quickly and says, get up quickly. And so it seems like this angel is in a bit of a hurry. And so he, sa he says, get up quickly. And continuing in verse 7, and his chains fell off. So immediately Peter's chains fall off. So now that he's free, he can get up. And the angel said to him, put your belt on, strap on your sandals. And, and he did so. And he said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And so Peter's chains fall off. The angel says, put your belt on. In other words, gird up your your." A robe because it's now you know below your knees, so get it up above your knees so we can move quickly. Um, and so, put your belt on, strap up your on your sandals, get your shoes on. Like Peter's totally chilled out the night before he's about to be killed, so he gets him to put his belt on, put his sandals on, tuck his uh, robe in, wrap your cloak around you because Peter's probably been sleeping on it or using it as a blanket while he's sleeping. So put your outer cloak on. And follow me. So the angel gives Peter very clear instructions, gets him up, gets him ready to move. And he went out and continued to follow. And so Peter follows this angel out of the prison. And yet, verse 9, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. So Peter's been sleeping soundly. He thinks he's having a dream. He's not totally conscious enough and awake enough to realize what's happening. He thinks maybe he's just seeing a vision, doesn't realize that this is actually really happening to him. Verse 10. Now, when they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads the city, which opened all by itself. So they get out of the prison, um, past the guards, and they come to an iron gate that leads the city. Now, we're not exactly sure where Peter was being held. Since this is Herod, and Herod's the one that put him in jail, a lot of scholars suspect that Herod had Peter in the holding cells in Herod's palace in the city of Jerusalem. So Herod's come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and he's arrested Peter, and he's staying at the, the Herodian palace in the city of Jerusalem. And so a lot of scholars think that perhaps Peter was being held there in the palace under lock and key in the jail or the prison that was in the palace of Herod. But we don't know for sure. That makes good sense. And so there's an iron gate that leads out of this prison and into the city itself. And that gate opened all by itself. I've always found that phrase Fascinating because literally the word by itself in Greek is automate, from which we get our word automatically. The, the, the gate opened automatically, like an automatic door. It swung open. Uh, and they, continuing verse 10, and they went out and they went along one street and immediately the angel departed from them. So they get out of the jail. They get into the city. They go one block over away from the jail, and the angel leaves. His job is done. And he's he's broken Peter out of jail. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So Peter finally at this point realizes, well, this isn't a vision. This was a real deal. I'm actually out of jail and I'm in the city itself. And he He's grateful and realizes that God broke him out of jail through an angel. So when he realized this, verse 12, he went to the house of Mary, 
the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And so Peter, knowing uh, where one of the places where the church likes to gather is Mary, the mother of John Mark's house, went there uh, and figured there would be a group of people praying for him there. So he works his way through the city. Remember, it's night, it's dark, but now he's a fugitive and he's on the run. So he kind of has to be careful, right? He's keeping an eye over his shoulders and watching his back and making sure he can get through the city and that no one sees him. You know, there's going to be extra uh, soldiers and guards in the city because it's Passover and that's normal. You got all these extra people, the city's crowded. So he's working his way through the city in the dark, um, after he comes to his senses and he realizes that he's been broken out of jail and he's heading to marry the mother of John Mark's house. This is important because John Mark will become um, a traveling companion of Barnabas and Saul for at least part of the first missionary journey. John Mark will get mentioned uh, several times in Paul's letters and even in Peter's letters. And so John Mark is a key player in the early church and in what happens in uh, future chapters in the book of Acts. John Mark is historically uh, the one responsible for what we call the gospel of Mark. And his family is a central family in the first church in Jerusalem. His mother's house is obviously a place where the church frequently gathers so that Peter uh, would uh, know that they would be gathered there. And so this is our introduction to him here. Um, He is mentioned here. His full name is John Mark, but we know him best simply as Mark. So continuing the story, Peter's working his way through the streets. He arrives at uh, Mary, the mother of John Mark's house, and he knocks at the door of the gate, verse 13. A slave woman named Rhoda came to answer. So there's a servant woman who is a part of this household. Uh, which speaks of the wealth of the household. Uh, The fact that there's a gate means we're talking about a fairly palatial place. It's got um, a gate that enters into an outer courtyard that is separate from the house. And so this gate means there's a wall around a courtyard. um, And then from the courtyard, you would go through that to get to the house. So Peter knocks on the door of the gate and the servant girl named Rhoda comes to answer. When she recognizes Peter's voice because of her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And so Rhoda hears Peter calling out at the gate. And when she comes to the gate, he announces his presence. Hello, it's me, right? And she recognizes Peter's voice, which means Peter's been in this house quite a bit. She's familiar to Peter. She's probably a believer herself. And she immediately recognizes, oh, that's Peter. But then she doesn't open the gate. She runs inside and says, Peter's out in front. And it's like, poor guy's a fugitive. He's on the lamb, right? Uh, And she tells everybody, here's how they respond to her announcement. Verse 15, they said to her, you're out of your mind. And so here they are praying for God to intervene. God does intervene and they think she's crazy. Who knows? Were they praying for Peter to get out of jail? Were they praying for God to favor him in his trial? We don't know, but God acted in a dramatic and miraculous way, and they don't buy it. They think Rhoda is out of her mind and crazy. You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it's his angel. What does that mean? It's his angel. Well, 
this seems to be, from what we can gather from Jewish tradition, uh, the idea of a guardian angel that would take the form of the person whom they were supposed to be guarding. And so, this is a Jewish tradition. This is nowhere taught in the scriptures, but there was this tradition among the Jews, at least a small tradition uh, to some degree, that uh, there could be guardian angels that would take the form of the person. So that seems to be what they're referring to here. It's his angel. It's his guardian angel. But Peter kept knocking. He's out there knocking like, come on, guys. And so Peter continued knocking when they had opened the gate they saw him and were amazed. Yes, it's actually Peter. It's not his angel. It really is him. Peter motioning him with his hands to be silent. Like, quiet down, quiet down, quiet down. Like, he doesn't want to draw too much attention to himself, right? Like, he just got broken out of prison by an angel. So he motions with his hands to quiet them down. And he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison through the angel. So he tells them all about the jailbreak and how the angel hurried him out of prison and got him out of jail. And he said, report these things to James and to the brothers. Which James do we have here? Well, remember, James, the son of Zebedee, was killed at the beginning of the chapter. This is most likely James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, uh, we know from Acts chapter 15 and elsewhere that he is a central player in the uh, early church in Jerusalem. And so as the leadership structure began to emerge in the church at Jerusalem, as the apostles began to leave Jerusalem more and more, there needed to be a more established leadership in the, the church at Jerusalem. James, the brother of Jesus, becomes one of those key players in the church in Jerusalem. In fact, Acts chapter 15, when we get to Jerusalem conference, he has a really powerful and influential voice in that conference. This James, the brother of Jesus, is most likely the same James that wrote the letter of James later in the New Testament. Um, that's who we're talking about here. And so Peter's like, report this to James. In other words, the one of the key most influential leaders over the whole church in the city of Jerusalem and the brothers, presumably the other elders, the other leaders in the church. So report this to them. Then he left and went to another place. Now, Luke doesn't tell us where he went. Presumably he knew, but it's just not an important detail. But what this tells us is Peter leaves Jerusalem and he goes to somewhere else to continue his ministry. And we know from uh, his writings, First uh, and Second Peter, and we know from uh, early church tradition that he spent some of that time in what is now modern day Turkey. And so Peter begins to move and expand his ministry into another area. And this is what helps us understand this transition of leadership in the church at Jerusalem. All right, so Peter has made it out of jail, and he has now connected with the church, and he's on his way somewhere else when morning arrives. And this is what seems to suggest that it was the last watch of the night, this next little scene. So when morning arrives, what happens now to the soldiers and with Herod and all of that? We'll look at verse 18. Now, when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. In other words, the soldiers have been watching Peter through, throughout the watches of the night. Day comes, Peter's not there. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered them to be led away to execution. And so Herod 
wonders, are the guards in on it? Did they help him escape? Like, that's the most logical thing in his mind is this is an inside job. They must have helped Peter escape. And so they are actually given the punishment that uh, was supposed to be given to Peter. And this was actually a common uh, military and Roman practice in that day and age. If you failed at your post of guarding a prisoner, you were given the punishment that the prisoner was supposed to receive. Well, uh, in this case, the, the four soldiers who were guarding him during that watch of the night when Peter escaped, they are led away to execution. And then Passover's over. Uh, Herod himself is done with some time there in Jerusalem. And so he leaves Judea and he heads back down to the main Roman capital in the city of Caesarea on the coast. And he's spending now his time there. So that wraps up the, the little scene with Peter and the dramatic jail escape and all of that. But it doesn't wrap up the scene with Herod. Herod is now in Caesarea. Caesarea is the Roman capital on the coast, major city. We've talked about it when we talked about Cornelius' conversion. It's where Herod would have his main headquarters, would be in Caesarea. And so he is there in Caesarea. And here's what happens. And what happens next is significant, not only for uh, Herod, but it's significant for uh, an understanding of God's sovereignty and God's way he deals with people and deals with the world. And so look what happens. Verse 20. Now, he, Herod, was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one mind, they came to him. And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was supported with grain from the king's country. In other words, we have some uh, international disputes going on here. We have some foreign policy disputes. We maybe have some trade tariffs going on here. Um, Tyre and Sidon uh, and Herod are at odds. Uh, Tyre and Sidon are supported with grain from the king's country, probably Galilean wheat and barley. Galilee was uh, known for producing tons of wheat and barley. And they probably were exporting this at some point to Tyre and Sidon because Herod was a bit upset with Tyre and Sidon. He was probably not shipping out very much, not willing to export grain to Tyre and Sidon. And so now there is some, there is some foreign policy disputes. There's some international tension happening that's described in verse 20. So some of the leaders of Tyre and Sidon won over Blastus one of Herod's close personal confidence, his chamberlain, which literally refers to the one who's in charge of his bedchambers, like got to make sure he's safe and everything's taken care of in the bedroom. And so this is the servant that's over uh, Herod's personal sleeping area. Well, the people of Tyre and Sidon, they, they won over Blastus to try to appeal to King Herod um, and ask for peace. So, Here's what happens in the wake of that. Apparently, they've, they've patched things up. They're going to mend things up, right? They're, Herod and Tyre and Sidon are going to work things out. So they've now sent uh, emissaries to, uh, to Caesarea, and there's going to be sort of a grand celebration. It seems like it's probably a grander celebration than just that. That's in concert with another big event. Some even speculate that it might be in concert with some athletic events in 
um, Caesarea at the time. We're not totally sure, but it's a big deal. There's going to be this big uh, political event, and it's going to involve Herod, Tyre, Sidon, and a whole bunch of powerful people. So here's the way it plays out, verse 21. On an appointed day, after putting on his royal apparel, Herod took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. So here's the big day, some big ceremony. Herod actually puts on his royal clothes. And Josephus actually describes this exact same day and this exact same event. And so we know from secular history, uh, we at least have a kind of a confirming and a further description. So we know what his royal apparel was made of. It was actually royal apparel that was woven out of pure silver. So it's this very uh, extravagant and opulent and beautiful apparel that's made out of silver. And Josephus describes how as he's standing there in the theater in Caesarea, and as the sun is coming up, it uh, sparkled and, and reflected off of his royal apparel, made Herod look even more impressive, right? More incredible and amazing as it reflected off his apparel. And he takes his seat on the rostrum, in other words, at a large speaking area, and he's speaking to the people. Um, and the people, as they're watching all this, began crying out over and over again, the voice of a God and not a man, the voice of a God and not a man. And Josephus notes that as the people cried out like this, that Herod didn't deny it. He gladly welcomed this, even though he should have known better because of his Jewish background and his connection to the Jews, but he didn't deny it. Josephus also adds that in that moment, Herod saw an owl sitting on a rope above him, and he took that as a bad omen in this moment. And it was at that moment that he was seized by a pain in his stomach and According to Josephus, Herod cried out in that moment, I whom you call a god am commanded presently to depart this life. And he collapsed in the theater and was carried out. That's the way Josephus describes it. Here's the way Luke describes it. Uh, Acts 12, 22. The people kept crying out the voice of a god and not a man. And immediately, Luke says, an angel of the Lord struck him because he didn't give the glory to God and he was eaten by worms and he died. And this actually becomes one of our fixed dates in New Testament chronology because we know from secular history the year that Herod died. He died in 44 AD. And so that helps us fix kind of time period on some of these early events of uh, the book of Acts that kind of are connected with this. And it helps become a fixed date for some of the later events in the book of Acts. And so this becomes one of our fixed dates in New Testament chronology. And notice how Luke attributes that his death was actually an act of judgment from God. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he didn't give God the glory. And Luke wants us to realize in telling us this story, who's really in charge here? Herod thought he was in charge, right? And he had James arrested and James executed. He arrested Peter, but guess what? God broke him out of jail. Yes, at the last minute, he broke him out of jail and sent him on his way. And now God has uh, Herod executed because of his blasphemy and his opposition to the work of God. So who's really in charge? And that's uh, one of the major questions Luke wants us, I think, to reflect on as we think about this story. 
that even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of opposition, even in the midst of a powerful uh, political figure like Herod Agrippa I, God still is ultimately in charge and God still will get his work done. If God wants to break someone out of jail, God can do that. If God wants to allow someone like an apostle, like James, be executed at the hands, God will allow that. That God is sovereign and he makes these choices. And we don't always know and understand why God makes the choices he makes. Why did God allow James to suffer execution and God send an angel to break Peter out of jail? Both were apostles. Both were serving God, right? Like both were important. And yet one gets an angelic jailbreak and one doesn't. And we don't know why God makes these choices. We know that for every choice we make or every choice God makes, there are ramifications. And so when God chooses to send an angel to break Peter out of jail, four soldiers are executed because of that. This is just the nature of life in this world. And this is the nature of God being king and God being in charge, that God God has to make these kinds of choices. And our job, like the church's job, is to pray. And even though they're praying and they're shocked when God actually answers their prayer, maybe in a more dramatic way than they expected, we need to pray in faith, trusting God's sovereignty. And it won't always make sense to us. God's not always going to do what we expect. God will answer sometimes in ways exactly like we asked. Sometimes he won't do anything close to what we asked. Sometimes uh, he's going to do the opposite of what we asked. And we won't always get it this side of eternity. We may never always get it. But this text reminds us that the ultimate king are not the political powers of this world. The ultimate king is God himself, and he's the one who's in charge, even to the point of judiciously executing a pagan king like Herod Agrippa. Now, two last verses of chapter 12, then, that wrap up this whole section. They wrap up, really, the third major act in the book of Acts. And so notice verse 24, we get another one of these summary statements about how the gospel continues to grow and increase. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied in the face of opposition, in spite of political powers trying to thwart it and kill the leaders. The word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned when they had fulfilled their mission to Jerusalem, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. And with that, Luke wraps up the first half of the book of Acts. The focus has been primarily on the apostles in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas around that. It's primarily been on Peter himself. But now Peter is out of Jerusalem. He's moved to another area. And the first half of the book of Acts is now over. And we are now preparing for the second half of the book of Acts, which is going to focus on Paul and how that gospel is going to continue to spread and increase all throughout the, the Roman world.